0: You are listening to the Boundless Vancouver Sermon Podcast Series. We pray you experience the deep life and wide love that God has for you today. Hi, I'm Jonathan Evans. This sermon, A Way of Hell, or Who's In and Who's Out, based on Mark 9, verses 38 through 50. You might want to stop now and have a read. What do basketball tryouts, music, acting, or dance auditions, job interviews, and first dates all have in common? Rejection. As a 16-year-old, I had little chance of making the basketball team in my fifth high school. But ask Donnie or anyone who's played with me, I used to have Allen Iverson skills. I wasn't picked because I was four foot eight and 98 pounds. The coach said to me, you have skill, but the other team would laugh at us if we even put you in the layup line before the game. Ouch. Not what a little guy wants to hear in mid-adolescence. Maybe you have been in a position where you've been picked last for a team, or you've felt because of who you are, you didn't fit in with a group. Human groups, anyone who organizes a community or church, has a conundrum who belongs, who's on the team, who gets to perform in the group. Essentially, who's included and who's excluded. What does Jesus say about who's in and who's out on his team? I think we'll be okay with how he sets up the rules about who's in and who's out. And as you listen to this passage, ask, who does Jesus include and who does Jesus exclude? This sermon will have four points. First, Jesus includes servants, those who care for the less fortunate in his name. Second, Jesus excludes bullies, those who discourage others' faith in him. Third, we can disqualify ourselves from Jesus. And then fourthly, the reality of hell, what it is and how to get out of it. So first, Jesus includes servants, those who care for the less fortunate in his name. This sermon series is called King and Kingdom. There's some who really like King Jesus, but not taking care of the poor, which is his kingdom. But there are some who really like the kingdom mercy, justice, charity, but not the king. Jesus' people like both the king and his kingdom. There's actually an analogous story to this in the Old Testament. If you look in Numbers 11, verses 26 to 30, there's a story about two guys named Eldad and Medad, and they're hanging out in the camp, and they start prophesying, but they are not a part of the 72 elders. So, Joshua, son of Nun, one Moses' right-hand guy, and who's going to take up leadership after, goes to Moses and says, hey, Stop them! But Moses replies in verse 29, Are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put His Spirit on them. Then Moses and the elders of Israel return to the camp. So here we discover the same heart of God in the Old Testament as Jesus in the New Testament. God desires everyone to know His love, hear His voice, and take care of others in Jesus' name. But not everyone hanging out with Jesus feels the same way. John and the disciples exclude this guy who's casting out demons in Jesus' name. So what's going on here? Well, I want to share with you a story from Eugene Peterson about inclusion and the surprising irony that outsiders are really insiders in Jesus' kingdom. He writes in the book, Practice Resurrection. I have a good friend who shortly after I met her, she was about 40 years old at the time, told me that she grew up in Arkansas poverty, in harsh, fundamentalist atmosphere, in abusive circumstances. She escaped family and town for California, and when she was 18, she became pregnant. She told me how she felt. Absolutely ecstatic. This life growing within her. She had never felt more herself. She had meaning. She had joy, carrying in her womb this new, innocent, unspoiled life, this mystery. She was no longer religious in any conventional sense, but she was absolutely convinced, not a shadow of a doubt, that God had created and given her this life that was in her. She gave birth to the baby sheer ecstasy beauty goodness she had never felt so alive so uniquely herself and then after a few weeks she fell apart she knew nothing about life she didn't know what to do she was confused bewildered without bearings she had no idea what to do with a baby she started drinking and became an alcoholic and she went on to using cocaine and was addicted It wasn't long before she was a prostitute. She spent the next 20 years on the streets of San Francisco trying to keep herself and this baby alive. And then one day she wandered into a church. The church was empty. She became a Christian. And she didn't know exactly how it happened, but she knew that it had happened. Another pregnancy It was an act almost as casual and unintentional as when she'd become pregnant with her baby boy. She didn't yet know what it had meant, but she knew that that was what she was. She was a Christian. This time around, she realized she knew nothing about living, but she also knew that there wasn't going to be any more hand-to-mouth living on drugs, alcohol, and sex. And after poking around a bit, she discovered and embraced the Christian way and gave herself to growing up into Christ, which she's been doing ever since. But you know what she found most difficult? People in churches. She looked around her and saw that her new friends were doing the same thing she had done earlier, only not so obviously. These churches seemed, to her, to be full of ideas and projects that they used as she had once used alcohol, drugs, and sex to avoid God, to avoid being present to life, being present to neighbor. They were doing everything religious except following Jesus. They were feeding their most childish and adolescent impulses and refusing to take up the cross of Jesus. They were not growing up in Christ. Lots of doctrine, lots of Bible study, lots of moral and ethical concern, lots of projects. But it struck her pretty thin soup. She was alarmed by the parallels to her former life and determined to live more sanely as a Christian than she had as a pagan. It took her a while, but she eventually found a few friends, a teacher, a pastor. She now had companions to a life of growing up in the full stature of Christ to become mature. The question for us this morning is, what will our church community be like People so busy with our own projects and acceptable vices that we miss out on God's work? Or could we be that inclusive and authentic community with many invitations into a deeper life of service? The disciples totally missed out with their position of privilege. There was someone who wasn't in their inner circle, but doing the ministry of Jesus. The solitary missionary was even amplifying Jesus' mission and message. Ironically, he was able to do the things that John and the disciples couldn't. He could cast out demons. So they found a reason to stop him. And when they go to King Jesus with a report, they're surprised to find out Jesus' inclusion policies are, whoever is not against us is for us. And anyone, even outsiders, who serve humbly, even cups of water, will be rewarded. How does this apply to us? Church isn't about just joining in worship, as important as that is, but realizing God has called us together to do something and include others in doing that. Excluding oneself from worship, from praising Jesus' name, does have its consequences. And excluding oneself or others from ministry is just as dire. In fact, there are people who are living more authentically in our community because of their service and ministry at our community ministries. You might not even know who they are. They are the ones giving out cups of water in Jesus' name, and He will reward them. Sadly, during this time of COVID, we've seen people fade away, preferring their individual preferences and deciding not to be involved with anyone or anything. I'll come back to this because Jesus has strong warnings about getting caught up in an individual life over the community of faith. We should look to restore and invite these friends back while also recognizing that the Spirit is welcoming other neighbors into a community of hope. Would you consider giving up your privilege and changing your schedule to be involved in the Boundless Vancouver Community Ministries? The Scripture is a compelling call to be involved in Jesus' wide love, his inclusion of our neighbors and volunteers. So if Jesus includes and rewards volunteers, who's excluded? Jesus excludes bullies. Those who discourage and turn away faith. Jesus says in Mark 9:42, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, It would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. He's using metaphoric hyperbole, obvious and ridiculous illustration and exaggeration to emphasize a very important point. Some people read this like John and James, wanting to call down fire upon Jesus' enemies. Just substituting fire for huge rocks only oxen can move and drowning people into the abyss. To the ancient Israelite, there were few tragedies worse than drowning deep in the fearful sea. It's still a powerful image today. But they got it wrong. It's them. It's believers that Jesus is warning here. So, why are you so serious, Jesus? Well, because the disciples' exclusion against the exceptional exorcist would cause him to stumble, to give up his ministry, to stop Declaring the power and love of Jesus in the lives of people who are being set free. Do you see the exponential problem? And there's serious irony here. Underwater torture and drowning is a better position to be in than turning people away from Jesus. We have to be very careful with our posture and words. With people who are on the margins of faith or other faith communities that seem different than what our experiences, Newcomers deserve special treatment. Partnerships with churches should be explored in realizing Jesus' will. And this is a warning for disciples, for church insiders who sit on mission boards, behind executive desks, and those multi-generational families who want to control a church to serve their own privilege. It's also a warning for any evangelist who in their zeal are offensive and turn people away from the gospel. If we do things that shut the door to newcomers, we delude ourselves about who Jesus is and what he's all about. He's about welcome, freedom, giving life, life to the full to others. And if you aren't a part of this mission, you're better off not interfering far away on an Atlantis vacation. And now we'll see, it isn't just others that can turn away from Jesus. The third point is this. We can disqualify ourselves from Jesus when we want. I read about a refugee couple that escaped financial ruin, death threats, and physical abuse for their Christian faith in Iran. After two years of living in North America, the wife asked her husband if they could return to Iran because, she said, there's a satanic lullaby in America, causing Christians to fall asleep. There's no real persecution in the West, but the cultural captivity is trapping. The pursuit of individual possession, privilege, power, and popularity lull us to sleep. And if we pursue our own wants and desires, we're building our own empire, a kingdom that's opposed to Jesus' kingdom. And he continues with the hyperbole, Dire warnings for insiders to keep them on the straight and narrow. Mark 9, verses 43 to 47 read, And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into hell. Jesus isn't recommending body mutilation here. He's saying even good things need to be cut out of our lives, especially if they're bringing us down the road to perdition. If our hands, that is, our work and activities, the things that bring us prosperity, safety, and comfort, distract us from Jesus and take us out of his community and teachings, we better watch out. We better quickly turn back and get things straight. It's better to lose your job and money to receive eternal rewards that are lasting. If our feet, that is, where we go and our direction in life isn't in full pursuit of Jesus' ways, we need to be aware that the company we keep and the destination we end up in If we are following another or wandering by ourselves, we need to make a 180-degree turn back to God. Maybe this morning you know the direction of your life is far off, and God is welcoming you back home. And finally, if our eyes, that is, our attention and aim is off the mark, then it's better to have blurred vision. We're called to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. The word for sin in Greek is actually hermasia, to miss the mark. To not look at what really matters, Jesus and his kingdom. What captures your gaze is your God. What you behold, you become. And if we are captivated and investing in anything other than what Jesus wants, we'll miss out. Like someone who plays darts and closes one eye, real Jesus followers close an eye to the luring distractions so they can stay on target. This passage was always interpreted as the lures of the lust in the early church. The passion and desires of the human heart are opposed to God, and if they're not tempered, they'll take us out of Jesus' community. To give direction for today, I would say we best interpret this to mean smash your iPhone, delete the app, cancel your internet subscription, quit your job, smash your dreams, if they're getting in between you and Jesus. We can disqualify our lives by chasing our own desires rather than the humble servanthood Jesus models and rewards. Martin Luther King Jr. put it this way, life is not worth living until you found something worth dying for. The question is, have you found yourself in Jesus and His kingdom a life worth living? Well, we've arrived at our final point, the reality of hell, what it is and how to get out of it. Fire and brimstone preachers love to talk about hell, but I almost only talk about it when it comes up in the text. One thing to note is that Jesus teaches and preaches hell to insiders, not outsiders. He's not the guy with the megaphone on the sidewalk or the fundamentalist with placards at protests. Don't let those images cloud your hearing here. Jesus eternally rewards the righteous servants who are loyal to him and renewal in the world. The question here is, is hell a torture chamber for his enemies, those who oppose him? Mark 9, verse 48 through 50 read, Where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. There's a lot going on here, but I'll make it short and sweet. As short and sweet you can make hell. The word for hell here is Gehenna, from which the Hinnon Valley, the steep ravine to the southwest of Jerusalem, is. It's where human sacrifice had been practiced in Joshua, and it that's where it gets its name. The place was Jerusalem's garbage dump, where discarded waste, animals, and yes, even people fermented and burned in the scalding sun. The image of smoldering putrefaction comes from the final verse of Isaiah 66, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It speaks of the realm of hungry ghosts, a life not only in the future but now that's unfulfilled, restless, and wasted without God. The salt and fire language, yes, is of testing and purification, most likely the element of acceptable sacrifice in the temple. It's likely this illustration Paul thinks about in Romans 12, 1-2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Jesus emphasizes that this call to true discipleship, to love, surrender, generosity, and mission is not inconsequential. If people, even close friends like John, work against Jesus and his project, they should examine themselves and determine if their life will lead to an eternal reward or waste. Hell's not a torture chamber, it's the eternal realization that our lives, designed to be good, creative, compassionate, and community focused, can so easily become worthless garbage. And this is the strongest possible warning to be not self-deceived, thinking that we're doing great things. Even pastors, prophets, healers, and Christian leaders may one day say, but but, but but, but, Lord, didn't I do this in your name? And Jesus' response, I did not know you. Get away from me. A life without God, without knowing Jesus, is simply a waste because He is the reason for all things. To live in eternity without God's love, grace, forgiveness, and redemption is putrid squalor. And we don't want to be in that place. And so, Jesus summarizes with that last phrase, phrase, be at peace with one another. It sums up this whole passage. To know God and to be directed by Him gives us peace with Him, ourselves, and others. To know God is to know peace. And if we have no God, there is no peace. In conclusion, Groucho Marx wrote in his resignation to the Friars Club, I don't want to belong to any club that would ex- accept me as one of its members. Deep down, we know we aren't perfect. And based on our own credentials, we have few qualifications that make us belong. Especially if we talk about the external exclusive club that has figuratively pearl gates and streets of gold if we're real with ourselves we understand that we don't have rights and privileges to be included in Jesus' perfect life but this passage tells us something remarkable we're accepted solely based on our faith in his name Jesus invites outsiders to himself in a wonderfully inclusive invitation Come follow me. Notice that word follow. He didn't call his disciples to sign up for a program or even attend church. The exceptional exorcist believed in Jesus and started doing the stuff. And he's called us just in the same way to leave our agendas of power, popularity, possessions and privilege, those things that only belong on the eternal garbage heap. Trade in that old life for the new life that has eternal purpose and reward. In following Jesus and simply by joining His project with pure motive, we know that personally we have been accepted by God, the one whose opinion matters above all. We know, secondly, that our life has a purpose, that we're contributing to an eternal project that really counts in this life and the next So maybe you've been in a position where you felt like you didn't make the mark and have been excluded based on your talents, your intelligence, or the way you look. Maybe you found out repeatedly in life that there's reasons that you self-sabotage, disqualify yourself, and you jump from community to community trying to find out where you belong. But maybe... Or maybe today, for the first time, you can find yourself in an entirely different situation. You've been picked, accepted, and given trust and favor because of the person who has called you. Jesus is like that. He sees you. He likes you. He loves you. He created you, didn't He? And He wants to involve you in what He's doing in the world. You were fashioned perfectly for that and He is with you all the time to help you fulfill your purpose in you being you and you being with others in that. He wants everyone to be included. The disciples thought they belonged to an exclusive club, but that mindset is eternally dangerous. And you don't have to fear hell if you pick what Jesus has picked for you, a full life of being loved by God and others in the postures of surrender, generosity, and mission. Bless you. Thanks for listening to the Boundless Vancouver Sermon Podcast. For more messages and contact us, please head to our website, byvr.life.